The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Hello, everyone, and good evening. I'm so excited to be here with you. Um, we are here tonight across the CSU system. Um, my name is Dr. Fionn Biotas, and I am the Executive Director of Graduate Life and Diversity at SDSU, and I will let my colleagues introduce themselves. I'm Nola Butler-Bird, and I'll introduce myself a little bit more later. Buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Marcela Polanco. I am um, a family therapist, part of the Family Therapy Master's Program here at SDSU. Bienvenidos. Hello, everyone. My name is Yasmin Luz Fernandez. Pardon my, my voice, I'm a bit sick right now. And I am the graduate student assistant, and I'm also a current um, MFT trainee with the SDSU MFT program. I think that's everyone. Um, so I just want to give you a little bit of a roadmap for tonight. Uh, I'm going to share about the Women of Color Empowerment Group that we started at San Diego State and was described in the video. And then Dr. Bird is going to share about our CSU-wide events, and then we will have our honored guests um, all engage with you. So let me, let me share just a little bit about the Empowerment Group at San Diego State. About two years ago, a group of us got together and applied for a chancellor, um, sorry, applied for a retention grant through the chancellor's office. And we created the first women of color empowerment group led by women of color health professionals who have knowledge, the knowledge and skill set to really address race related stressors. And needless to say, the grant was funded and the group started in the spring. And I can tell you it's been phenomenal. Um, we, we had an outpouring of individuals who wanted to participate in the group. And so there clearly was a need. Um, we had over 70 women sign up and at the time we only could accommodate 20 people. And so as a result of there being more of a need than we could fill, um, we decided to meet that need through this CSU wide, um, led initiative. And so Dr. Bird, I will let you take it from here. Okay, welcome to our fifth Woman of Color webinar. Um, the reason, as, as um, Fionn just stated, we wanted something for everybody because women of color across the country are often, we, we're taken advantage of, and here at the university, I often think of us as sort of playing the role of the mules of the academy because we do so much important work and we're often not acknowledged for that work. And so this series that we started last year uh, is all about touching bases with us, giving us a space where we can talk about the critical issues that are impacting us and so that we can come together and also not just talk the talk, but try to figure out some ways that we can affect some change on our campuses and throughout the CSU. 
So my name is Nola Butler-Bird. I'm an associate professor and director of the San Diego State Community-Based Block Multicultural Counseling and Social Justice Education Program. I also serve as vice chair of the San Diego State University Senate, and I'm a member at large of the Academic Senate of the CSU. And I just really want to welcome you to this space. Um, several years ago, we started working on these issues, and we're going to continue this work. I also wanted to raise up uh, um, Dr. Uh, Telemonte, who is at CSU Dominguez Hill. She's also working on an initiative for women of color having to do with leadership development, because leaders we need to be uh, in key places that we often are, not, are excluded from in order to have our voices heard on all levels. So these continue to be challenging times for everyone. COVID has really brought us to our knees to some extent, and it feels like right now as we enter this third year, like some of that is not being acknowledged. And part of the reason why we also uh, began a survey, put together a survey, because we wanted to find out how you all are doing. And we wanted to be able to gather data so that we can let folks know, using your voices, what you're experiencing, how you're feeling about your campus environment, how you're doing. And also hear what things would be critically important for you to receive from an opportunity like this. Within the CSU, we're dealing with additional crises. Our chancellor just recently resigned in disgrace over Title IX issues that had to do with women of color on, on, his, on a campus where he had been president, issues that had gone on for six years and were per perpetrated, unfortunately, by a male of color. I want to thank everybody for completing the survey. Thus far, we have received 134 responses from a cross-section of uh, the entire CSU, from, from faculty to staff. And here's some of the comments that we received thus far regarding emotional and physical stress. One, one person said, stress is a silent killer, and I've experienced much stress over the last few years. Another said, I'm pretty happy with my job, but I do tend to have lots of internal stress because of the level of responsibility. While another said, I'm pretty happy with my job, but I do tend to have lots of internal stress because of the level. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that twice. And, and finally, another one said, I think I'm just getting tired. I'm planning to retire in January 2024. And finally, another person said, I don't sleep well, and I never have enough time to complete all of my work. Another subset, uh, sample of folks said, um, in terms of their sense of belonging to, to their campus, I enjoy most of my colleagues, and I work with, and I'm, I love working with the students. I have a couple of groups of friends at work that are really supportive but I don't feel support from my administration. Another woman said, many times when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we keep it to a black and white issue. Many times the Latino, Latinx community is not mentioned, not addressed, not visible, not represented. The majority of our students in our department are Latinx, and we do not have any, zero, 
tenure track faculty to represent us. While another woman said, I feel valued, respected, and as part of a team with people of color who are like-minded, but in other departments, I am unseen. I do not like my experience, or I do not feel like my experience and dedication matters to my university. And when asked, uh, I believe that my university is, one uh, participant said, I believe that my university is biased in that gender sexuality, that portion of diversity was heavily, I mean heavily addressed. Meanwhile, at the same time, we accidentally became an HSI, and yet we still have the highest faculty to student ratio for Hispanics. I believe one Hispanic faculty for every 145 Hispanic students while those numbers for white faculty to student ratios are one to 17, and white students are still the largest population on campus. And then I'll share one other comment that a couple of folks made about pay parity issues. My disagreement on parity issues are related to inequity and in pay scales at the CSU not being competitive with the rest of the job market. And then finally, uh, one other person said, my university does not reward loyalty. The longer you on campus, the lower your pay is relative to new hires. There is no system to re review pay to make sure wages are equitable and in, align uh, in alignment with similar positions. As an MPP, I am one of the lowest paid because I have been here more than 25 years. It is not my fault that I enjoy what I do and that I choose to stay, as well as coming from a culture of gratitude to maintain stability. But I cannot directly ask for an increase. I'm at the mercy of my AVP, and I hope they will advocate for me. So these are some of the critical issues that women on our campuses are dealing with. I want to ask you all to please consider, if you haven't completed the survey, to please do so, because we're going to continue to use this information to make sense of what our agenda will be in the next year and to let folks know how women of color are suffering on our campuses. And so without further ado, oh, I'm going to also, uh, there's one other person that I wanted, two other people I wanted to acknowledge before we get started. And that's Dr. Arianne Miller, who could not be with us today. She's a co-facilitator for our, our, our empowerment groups and a key uh, uh, person who has been working with us since the beginning of this project. And also, I'd like to uh, give a special thanks to Jennifer Wick. She's the executive producer, learning and Devel uh, development um, with the CSU Chancellor's Office. She's serving as our tech support for this webinar, but she won't be participating. So you'll see her picture on the, on the screen, but she won't be participating. In fact, there are two screens that she's operating. So if you're wondering if anybody's he here um, that we didn't invite, just know that she's here for us. Okay, and so without further ado, I had the pleasure of meeting and observing Dr. Londa Jose uh, through my work with the Statewide Academic Senate, the ASCSU. And I was always really impressed with how strongly she was always advocating for people of color. 
Um, she's always, she's been, she was working on initiatives with the governor's office uh, in her position at that point in time. And I was sorry to see that we lost her, but we knew that she wasn't gonna go too far. And so she graces, graciously agreed to come and work with us today and share her story. Dr. Landy Ajose is Vice President and Walter and Esther Hewlett Chair in Understanding California's Future and Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. And Lord knows we need somebody like her at the helm. Her career has focused on improving the lives of Californians by working in state government, private philanthropy, and research institutions. Her research interests include addressing issues of inequality through education and employment. And she was recently the senior policy advisor for higher education for the office of, the, of Governor Gavin Newsom. And today she's gonna share some of her story, share a little bit about how she became who she is and, um, and become an inspiration for us. Um, as well provide insights into the strengths and challenges that women of color are facing in academia and address any of your questions. She's also gonna engage us, I think, in some dialogue and discussion. And so without further ado, welcome Dr. Ajose. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate uh, being here with all of you today. And uh, I have to say, um, seeing that there are some 70 folks on, uh, on the call makes me want to chuck my, you know, talk that I've written and actually just talk with folks about what's happening, because I certainly am rarely in environments where I get to be on screen with uh, 70 women of color. Um, in fact, when I think about my own organization now, fewer than five in an organization of 75. So I feel that experience um, viscerally. Um, but I won't chuck the whole thing. I will um, you know, try and go back and forth between um, my own personal experience, um, what, how that maybe resonates with you all, for you all. Um, I'll lay out some maybe, um, maybe controversial, maybe enticing ideas for us to be thinking about as we find our way um, in this third year of the pandemic, as we think about how we take care of ourselves, as we think about how we support our students, as we think about how we build our communities um, and care for our community. So that is what we will be about. I'll talk for hmm, 20, 25 minutes, and then I really want us to be uh, a kind of conversation between all of us. So thanks again for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, I wanted to, to start really by thinking about the role you all play. You all stand up every day, you show up every day, you are asked to be your best selves every single day. And as women of color, that means that we face really unique challenges. And so my question that I wanted to do, or what I wanted to start with is kind of a poll. And I know you all have just done um, you know, a survey, but the words that I heard in the survey really were evocative of so many of the challenges that we face. So I thought just as a community together, we could start with a poll. And so the first question of the poll, if the poll could go up, um, is really for, to ask each of you to describe your work environment. And I'd love to see um, how you would describe that environment in terms of how supportive it is of you professionally and personally. So take a minute to answer, if you would. How many feel that their work environment is supportive of them? 
And it looks like we have 59% who feel like, yes, the work environment is supportive of them and 39% who would disagree with that statement. Actually, we have 62%. Oh, it's going up. Um, but at least a third of us are feeling like, no, we do not work in an environment that is in fact supportive of the work that we're doing. Um, and that's troubling uh, because of the amount of time that we spend with our work because of the amount of dedication that we have to our work and to our students. Um, so that is, I think, uh, an important um, fact. Uh, I'm gonna stop sharing and ask that we go to the second poll and um, think about how many of you would describe yourselves as doing a good job in your own self-care? Do you do a good job of taking care of yourself? Do you take care of your own emotional well-being as you are thinking about uh, that supportive environment that you work in personally and professionally? Really interesting. These results look really different so far. Two-thirds of us, more than two-thirds of us think we would disagree with that statement. Right, so we have 67% who would say they do not do a good job of self-care. So that's gonna be our second um, survey question. Our third poll, which is to think a little bit about where all of this comes from. So if we could put up the third poll question and that's how many of you grew up or lived in an environment with women who effectively modeled for you how to care for yourself. Wow. Look at that. 87% of us would disagree with that statement. 87%. So that's stunning, right? We do feel professionally fulfilled. We feel supported. We're not good at taking care of ourselves. And we have not actually seen examples of people who can show us how to take care of ourselves, who have modeled that we are worth taking care of ourselves. And I wanted to start with that poll and thank you for the polling, because I think fundamentally, both structure and experience inform everything that we do. And it informs how we show up in the world. And I think that especially as women of color, we are far too busy taking care of others. We are far too busy um, taking care of the business that we need to tend to. And we tend to ignore the importance of structure and experience in our own lives and in how we choose to live our lives. And so I wanted to like put a fine point. Your responses to these questions show that structure influences you and show and speak to, to the cumulative effect of your experiences. And so I wanna lean into that a little bit as we think about the time that we're gonna to spend together. I thought I would start by starting by sharing my own story because I think when we're thinking about those experiences, when we're thinking about the structures that they fit into, it's important to be able to uh, contextualize it. And I, the, the easiest way for me to do that is to share my own story. Um, and I'm gonna end, um, because it, kind of talking about what I think it, it means in terms of some of the structures. Um, when I share my own story, I do that because I think it points out the ways in which we're often ill-prepared to encounter uh, for what we encounter in higher education. And um, yet 
those experiences which we have as incomplete as they sometimes are in terms of having those models can be sources of strength for us and eventually i think they can even be sources of renewal for us and so i wanted to talk to you about what that means in the context of today's students in the context of today's institutions in the context of your jobs and your day-to-day and what we need to be doing to ensure that our structures are providing the kinds of opportunity that young women of color and older women of color uh, in in our institutions need in order to feel seen in order to succeed and in order to learn to prioritize and to care for ourselves so my story of going to college is both ordinary and i think extraordinary both expected in some ways and unexpected uh, I am the daughter of immigrants. Uh, both of my parents came to the United States in the 1960s to go to seek higher education. And they met as optimistic 20 year olds in the city of Chicago. They were both sent by their families uh, from Nigeria to go to college. And while they started on that path, their love story didn't quite turn out as planned. And before long, I was the daughter of a single mom who moved to California with the dissolution of her divorce um, and struggled for a lot of years to really get on her feet. Uh, I grew up in Berkeley. I grew up in the shadow of Cal. I was the oldest initially of two children and then eventually of four. My mother used to work the night shift. She worked the night shift as a respiratory therapist because that was the best way to make ends meet. Um, She would leave home at 10 o'clock at night Um, tell me to lock the doors and unplug any appliances so that there would be no house fires. And she would go to work. And I would lock the doors as instructed, put my brother to bed, put myself to bed, and then wake up in the morning. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd make sure both of us were bathed, I'd make us breakfast, I'd lock the door behind me, and I'd get on AC transit to take my brother to school and then take myself to school. I had to manage things at home. And there was no babysitter to do that. And in retrospect, when I think about that experience, it's no accident that from a very early age, I was expected to go to college and to achieve. I remember my mother used to inform me that I was to be a doctor, when in fact, I really wanted to be an actor, but I'll let that go. Um, And to support my, uh, you know, my college bound future, My mom made sacrifices, uh, mostly in the form of not just working one job, but two um, in order to send me initially to to Catholic schools and then eventually to private schools. When I was in 10th grade, my mother took a trip to her homeland, to Nigeria. And her trip, which was initially planned for a few weeks, took a turn when her passport and green card were stolen. Initially, because she couldn't come back. I stayed with friends, family friends, but as the weeks dragged on into months, reality crept in and it was clear that she was not going to return anytime soon. So after a summer of couch surfing, of scooping ice cream for $3 an hour, of overseeing the eviction from our apartment, I eventually found a semi-permanent place to live with family friends in Hayward and commuted two hours each way to my college preparatory school in San Francisco. Those months then stretched into years and my circumstances continued to change. Eventually I found myself living on my own. 
as a junior in high school. And then eventually with the foster family that I was able to stay at my fairly ritzy private school through all of that change was actually a little bit of a miracle. But it was a miracle that was not an unintentional one. It was a miracle that was aided by the parents of a core group of friends who on occasion fed and sheltered me by a very generous parent who understood that I had a tuition balance that was gonna have me kicked out of school and paid the $700 for me to remain in school. And especially by an extraordinary faculty, faculty who organized to get me a full scholarship for my senior year when the head of school wanted to kick me out because I wasn't properly supervised. That full scholarship then led to a group of parents advocating for me to have a more permanent family. And so I moved in with a foster family, but that foster family was the family of one of the kids who went to my school so that I didn't have to work uh, while I was in school. They took me into their home. They provided me with stability. They provided me with security so that I could focus on my senior year in high school and applying to college. So I share all that because really, by all measures, one would think that college really wasn't in my future, right? And if college was in my future, it probably wasn't gonna be as a full-time student, it probably certainly wasn't gonna be at a four-year institution. And yet the reason I was senior policy advisor for the governor was because I believe that is what we are fundamentally called to do in higher education. We are called to ensure that everyone everyone has meaningful access to quality post-secondary education, and also to ensure that the opportunity to be educated does not just reproduce the historic wealth and inequity that is so deeply embedded in our history as Americans, but instead that it provides for the kind of economic and social mobility that is deeply rooted in our ideals as Americans. You know, when I reflect on my trajectory now, I really, think that high school was both a lifeline that lifted me up and an anchor that kept me grounded. Um, it demonstrated for me at a very early age that three things really mattered for success. The people in your life, the institutions, societal, political, educational, civic in one's life, and finally, the individual themselves. For me, in terms of people, I was lucky that I had so many cheerleaders in my corner. I had a cohort of college-bound friends who provided me not only with safe harbor and a meal periodically, but who also were modeling that, yeah, college was something that we were all going to do. I had those teachers who petitioned for me to stay enrolled. I had foster parents who helped me to choose the right college. I had instructors and advisors who helped me to launch my career. I have supervisors over the course of many years who have helped me to grow my skills. I have a spouse who is amazing and who has supported my dreams and my aspirations. I have mom friends who are critical, who dispense invaluable advice on managing my career and parenting and who would pick up my kids if I was out of town and feed them and take them home. The strength, the tenacity of human relationships, the way in which they animate our lives, it is unmatched and the relationships that you were developing with each other in this forum and with your students are not just relationships 
for this time in your life. They are relationships for a lifetime. So I think a lot about institutions and institutions and the role that they play in people's lives. And I think institutions matter. And I think institutions and their leaders matter. When I first started theorizing about institutions, I would think about government. I think about the federal government that offered me a Pell Grant and that that was important as an institution. I think about the state government that gave me a Cal Grant and how that was important as an institution. I would think about the low rate subsidized loans that I borrowed to finance my undergraduate education. And I also think about the state subsidies, the institutional aid that was provided to me so that I could go to UCLA to get a master's degree. But as I've been thinking about institutions recently, I've been shifting how I think about them. It's not just about government. It's about the colleges themselves. I think government institutions are important because they provided me with the access that I needed. But what nags at me today is that access without the promise of and the possibility of success for our students is an empty promise. And we have to be focused on how our colleges are operating every day, day in and day out, to make sure that that is not an empty promise. For years, those of us in higher education circle really focused on access, and rightfully so. As you all well know, legal structures like Jim Crow, as well as the college, college practices were designed to keep us out. They were designed on the, you know, for selectivity. And that is in fact how Harvard became Harvard, how Yale became Yale. So making our way in the door became our focus. Affirmative action became our quest. And community colleges with their open access policies somehow became our colleges of last resort. But really what we've seen in the last decade is that increases in college enrollment have not been consistent with or commensurate with increases in completion, which has me wondering why. What's happening at our colleges and universities that students are not completing? You all know better than I do that five years ago or so, the non-completion story became headline news in California when it was revealed that the CSU had these four-year graduation rates of 19%. And while that was kind of eyebrow-lifting data, what didn't hit the papers, but those of us who were inside the institutions understood very well is that there was disturbing evidence that showed when you started to disaggregate the data, the results were even worse. I remember that I was working at an organization and they asked me to come speak and I was talking with them about their data and they were telling me that there was a CSU that had a four-year graduation rate of 9%. And when they disaggregated that data by race and by gender, it was revealed that only 3% of African-American men could expect to graduate from that institution in a four-year period. Now, I know that people have demands on their time and other commitments, but 3%, there's something going on that is not just about the, the demands of one's personal life. I was on a Zoom call last month where this issue of college retention and completion came up. And I was talking with a professor and I heard a common refrain, refrain that he used to refer to the challenge or to explain the challenge. And he said, you know, really the challenge that we have in terms of completion is a challenge 
that is not our fault. It is because students are not being properly educated at the K-12 level. And his logic went something like this. You can't expect me to educate this kid at a college level when they come to me unprepared. If you fix the leaky pipeline of K-12 with all of its inequities, then you allow me as a higher education, you know, as an educator to do my job. Now, I know that this is probably somewhat true. More equitable school funding, better paid teachers at K-12, more experienced teachers in K-12, all of that would go a very long way to improving post-secondary outcomes. But here's what I posited to my colleague. Imagine that actually we don't do anything different ever to make improvements in our K-12 system. What do we do then? The good news is K-12 will continue to improve, albeit much more slowly than any of us would like. But at the end of the day, it is incumbent upon all of us to act as if it will not because we cannot wait for these magical improvements to occur before we are committed to serving our students. And we need to act and act now. And actually, we need to act as if no other improvements will be made and we need to serve the students who sit before us. So for me, when I thought about the work that I needed to do in the governor's office to think about retention for students, to think about completion for students, it meant looking at three distinct things, teaching, assessment, and school climate. Briefly on teaching, if the pandemic showed us anything, it's that there are multiple modalities for conveying information and knowledge and that we have varied skills in how well we do this. Um, the early days of the pandemic, when everyone was transitioning to Zoom school, um, we basically took our curriculum and delivered it in a new platform, right? Um, and even, I would argue, even though we did not prefer that, there had been, in certain circumstances, some advantages. For example, I had some students who were working with me who said that their large lecture courses were actually, actually provided benefits in this new environment. I was curious. I said, why? And they said, look, online learning is not a panacea, but asynchronous courses allowed them to do a couple things. They could watch at their leisure. They could rewatch as they needed to. They could rewind if they didn't understand. They could fast forward if they were bored. They could take notes at the speed that worked for them. And often they would then have the opportunity to go to a discussion group or a breakout group that would have them engage more deeply in, in a conversation. It wasn't, you know, that was early in the pandemic and it wasn't until that summer, summer of 2020, that a few instructors started to think about how curriculum might change to take advantage of this new modality. Um, you know, we know that there are certain institutions that have taken this online learning modality very seriously. Um, and they have learned some things about how to chunk out content, how to loop back and reinforce ideas how frequently to engage students, how much personal connection is necessary. Uh, and some of those institutions are trying to move into California and take Cal grants now. I won't name them by name, but you may know them. But what I was encouraged to see is that there are actually some instructors, some professors who are thinking about what is it that we need to do in our, for California to really keep pace and think about how do we contextualize that online learning when it needs to happen. And so with that, I want to introduce you to Dr. Dan Garcia, 
and uh, we're going to show a two-minute video clip of Dr. Garcia. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Garcia. I'm a teaching professor at UC Berkeley, and I'd like to share with you some of the best practices I've discovered uh, as we've all gone to this crazy, wild, remote learning space, thrown into it whether we wanted to or not. What we're told is to try to make it as async. As much as I want to make things synchronous, allowing people to have it asynchronous allows for a couple modalities. Those students who are not making it a synchronous part of their kind of, it's in my calendar, it's 2 to 3 p.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm there in class and I just do this. What ends up happening is, well, I missed Wednesday and now I missed Thursday. Things got busy. I had a project with another class in chemistry, so I didn't do computer science for Wednesday and Thursday. So the idea has already started to bite us that students are slipping behind because it isn't part of their regular rhythm. So what we try to do locally is, at least with Berkeley, is try to have, okay, here's a, here's, a, here's a lecture, and then there's a quiz that counts for their final grade that you have to answer on Thursday. So you get a day to kind of do it. So that's the way we, we're working to try to keep it up. So as we're looking to the fall, which who knows whether the fall is synchronous or you know, online or face-to-face or, -face or some hybrid version of that, we're looking at can we have resources we put out there you pre-record all the lectures you can in advance. And you don't just pre-record an hour lecture, you research, learning science research says, you slice up lectures into six minute max. There's a paper in 2014, I should reference people, learning at scale 2014, that says six minutes is the max before um, attention drops off. So you slice up your hour, which is really only 50 minutes because you start 10 minutes into the lecture. So typically if I take a lecture and boil it down to six minutes of just content, it's like 30, 40 minutes out of a normal 50 minute class of 30 or 40 of solid content. But then you have to say what between each of these six minute chunks, you add a little quiz that- That's where you wanted to stop it, is that correct? Great, that's great, thank you. So that brings me to this issue of assessment because as you all well know, we generally use tests and papers and presentations and exams to allow students to demonstrate their knowledge and their mastery of a subject. And then we summarize all of that with a letter grade. Uh, a letter grade, though, is a symbol, and we don't know if Dr. Jose's A is the same as Dr. Garcia's A. So I think, actually, one of the potential lessons from the pandemic is that we think about assessment as not a symbol, but a product. Perhaps in addition to having letter grades, we should all be, you know, requiring and allowing and enabling our students to put together a portfolio a portfolio of their work, a portfolio of their best work, to show graduate schools, to show future employers exactly what they can do, what they have produced, what they are capable of. And that kind of portfolio can be inclusive of, inclusive of papers that they've written, videos of performances, photographs of artwork. Um, rather than just having a letter grade as a symbol to understand our capabilities and our accomplishments, we should be able to back that up with the real thing for students to be able to see and hold on to what they've done and to also be able to see their growth over time. The thing I really, really focused on in the governor's office, though, was this issue of school climate. And generally, issues of climate have been limited to having an anti-bullying campaign or a climate that does not allow for sexual assault. And to be sure, these are very, very important topics for our students and for our faculty and staff because they are about coming to our institutions and not being harmed, about ensuring that our colleges and universities are places that are safe.
But I think we need to expand our mindset from one in which we make sure that we mitigate harm to one in which we make sure that people in our institutions are thriving. And so this issue that we have around a productive school climate has been very, very much on our agenda as educators since the tragic murder of George Floyd. Colleges and universities are not immune to the racial reckoning that has finally, finally confronted our entire society. And these conversations initially looked like taking up issues like policing on our campuses um, or the issues that I described to you before, such as bullying and sexual assault. But again, I want to make sure that we're thinking about how we move from harm to thinking about how we move to celebration. So I had a chance to engage this topic on behalf of students last year when I led a task force on behalf of the governor focused on recovery with equity. And in the report that we produced, we posited that the pandemic actually provided us with a unique opportunity in a unique moment to shift the norms on our campuses, to find ways that, that the ways in which we functioned up until now do not have to be preordained, that perhaps the scrambling of the world order that we've all experienced provides us with an opportunity to imagine a different way of engaging one another, of showing up, of doing business on our campuses. What we came up with in the task force was focusing on fostering inclusive institutions, which we described as follows. An equity-focused institutional culture is needed to promote the success of Black, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, Indigenous, and adult learners. When an institutional culture is inclusive, diverse, and equity-centered, we know that our students are better educated and better prepared for leadership, citizenship, and professional competitiveness. So the idea here was that learners of all backgrounds will feel valued, will feel supported, will feel affirmed at their institutions, that faculty will be adept at creating courses that are responsive to and build upon the unique experiences and needs and talents of all of our learners, that post-secondary institutions themselves actively support career and academic uh, success and readiness. This means having an asset-based approach. This means having an anti-racist institutional culture in which, which benefits everyone in our institutions, regardless of their background. The task force ultimately identified three ways that we thought we could have a truly inclusive uh, institution for students um, that would result in a deeper sense of belonging. First, we thought we need to focus on improving the diversity of the faculty, staff, and students on our campus. And the intention here is to allow today's students to see and interact with faculty and others who not just look like them, this is not about counting numbers, but in fact, who have some familiarity with their life experiences and can help shift the institutional culture with their life experiences by creating um, experiences that recognizes and values those students. This is not about enumerating the numbers of different types of people on campus, but about creating a different kind of culture that embraces a broader range of people on our campuses. The second thing we did was to recommend cultivating inclusive engaging and equity-oriented learning environments. This means that we need to provide professional development, resources, and support 
for all of our higher education system leaders, faculty, administrators, staff, so that we are redesigning our culture and our environment to better serve everyone in higher education. I'm sure you're wondering what this looks like. Um, and so I actually have an example. Um, and I have an example that's from the classroom. Um, that it is from a, a professor at UC Berkeley who I've already exposed you to. And his name is, yes, Dr. Garcia. So if we could roll tape. Yes, in fact, Dr. Garcia is rapping to Dr. Dre about learning great ideas in computer architecture. Now, I'd argue that if he can make computer science and coding feel relevant to today's students, then just about any instructor should be able to take their subject matter and make it feel more relevant and more approachable to students. So here he is again in a different example. One, two, three, four, five, six. The six big ideas through architecture. Number one, it is all about the layers of abstraction. If you understand, no need for further action. Number two, if it's a whole fear, fear instruction, they'll tell you that Moore's Law was an exponential function. Second, cash just in case. The first one was a miss, locality of time and space. This hierarchy was smaller, costly, faster. Always a local copy of the bigger, cheaper master. enough parallel. Determinism can be held. Riding up your registers, accelerate with Cindy, or you go multi-core and then you speed it up with Mimdy. Yeah. Enough for improvement. Use a common metric, yo, is a movement. You get dependability. And one, two, or three, backups for redundancy. One, two, three, four, five, six. 61 C, good luck on your exam. Fun. That was so it's clear that he is not the best rapper. I give you that. But I will bet you that those kids remember the six big ideas of computer architecture. So the third priority that we have for creating a culture of belonging really has to do with how we engage students themselves, that our institutions have to intentionally, thoughtfully, and creatively evaluate and as necessary redesign the kinds of support activities and develop new practices and programs that are specified for students. An example directly from the pandemic is around food security. While the issue of food insecurity really in my mind is unconscionable, it's also a sad reality for way too many of our students. The pandemic certainly didn't improve that and those experiencing food insecurity 
that was often a condition that was made worse. What if you were a student whose home was in Fresno, but you attended Cal State Long Beach? What happened to you? You're not in class anymore. You're not living in Long Beach anymore. And yet that doesn't make you any more food secure. Is there a way, is there a possibility that there could be a reciprocity agreement because you're not just a part of the Cal State Long Beach environment and family, you're a part of the CSU family? Is there a reciprocity agreement that you could have with your nearest CSU? Could you go to Fresno State and access those services as a member of the CSU community? It was considerations like these that led to a whole set of recommendations and policy changes that I was proud to help, help enact while I was in Sacramento. In California, with few exceptions, this state will now require all students to complete a FAFSA application, providing millions of students with more money to go to, California, to go to college. In California, we are streamlining course numbering at our 115 community colleges so that students can more easily transfer to the CSU and the UC. In California, we're creating a dual admission pathway so that students in high school can receive admission to a UC and CSU, even as they opt to take their first two years at their local community college. These are the equity-based student policies that this state can advance. And I wanted to mention these reforms because I think they demonstrate the importance of our institutions, both at the college level as well as, well as at the government level. To be sure, each of those policy changes I mentioned are happening because we have a government, we have a governor who are centering people and students in their policymaking. But let's be clear, implementation of these policies does not happen unless those of us in our institutions, faculty, staff, administrators, want to also see that the success of that work. And I know that is what you do. And I know that is what you are called to do but that does not mean that that is not taxing as you do it. And so I wanted to underscore that they, these mechanisms for ensuring student success are vital, not only because of our students, but they're vital because of all of you. Faculty, staff, administrators, we have to be able to sustain ourselves in order to thrive, in order to model for others how to do that, in order to be able to mentor those need our mentoring, to provide for one another and our students what many of us did not actually have in terms of the modeling in our own home and in our own life experiences. Simply because our formative experiences weren't ideal, as in some cases, certainly mine was not, doesn't mean that we can't draw insight and inspiration and strength from those experiences. We can use those experiences to sustain ourselves. We can use those experiences to change the structure of institutions. We can use those experiences to change the trajectory of our students. We can use those experiences to create and build community so that we care for one another as we care for ourselves. And that is what this network is all about. And that is why I'm very grateful to have been with you this afternoon. Thank you. Dr. Ajosi, thank you so very much uh, for such a powerful um, introduction to what is behind the scenes, at least for me, I'm speaking as a person who is not in administration, but I am in the classroom with folks and you have uh, providing a larger context, more at the institutional level. 
Um, you made me think about many different things. I really appreciate uh, your entrance into the conversation uh, because you get, um, to invite us to think the, the powerful three Paul questions. Think about our relationship with the institution. Do we feel supported? Our relationship with ourselves. Are we caring for ourselves? And our relationship with other women in the institution. Do we have a role model at women? And the answers were as shocking as the questions. And uh, then proceeding with yourself from your lived experience. Uh, so very much appreciated that you um, help me connect to uh, perhaps the folks that are here as people, not as institutionalized professionals. And uh, so I made that connection uh, very clearly. Uh, there were two, um, I'm, I'm reflecting out loud, but I don't want to take too much space because you are interested in conversation and I can't wait to hear what the women in, uh, listening have to say. So I just want to reflect very quickly uh, about a couple of other four, uh, words that you mentioned among many others. The important distinction between harm and celebration, mm -hmm. right? That, um, it's not about harming students, but creating celebratory context. And I'm thinking as well, the institution where we are, that in a way it is harming us, right? And given by the results that uh, Nola shared with us at the beginning. Uh, and so the question that I'm, I'm having, and I'm uh, curious about the questions that folks are having as well, is how the institution create the conditions for us to be able to engage with students uh, from a celebratory uh, perspective. Um, you spoke about the importance of accessing, opening the door. And so the question is opening the door, but what is behind the door that are not harming processes, but celebratory uh, processes, both for students and for faculty. So thank you very much. And also I want to acknowledge as well that you said that we can also address you as Landon uh, or Dr. Ajasi. So thank you for that. So I think this is the time where you're inviting us for conversation. Um, and there were some comments and reflections from the chat. Uh, if somebody wants to hip hop or sing or dance, or <laughs> um, I think uh, we could uh, uh, unmute yourselves if somebody would have any uh, questions or reflections that they would like to share at this time. Well, how about we have folks raise their hand? Does everybody know how to raise your hand under the reactions tab? Yes, well, uh, folks get ready, uh, start thinking, and uh, perhaps making sense of their reflections in response. Um, I wonder if I can offer a question at this time. Um, from your, your vantage point that you have been mostly involved uh, government and institution education, I do wonder if, um, if there are some aspects that you have identified 
that in what I understand as a predominantly white institution, which is the university, uh, the way that is designed and the pedagogies. If you have identified cracks or hopes or structures that have advanced by women of color for women of color, um, if there are specific um, examples or strategies or policies or stories you could share with us um, that perhaps serve for us as as a model or as a possibility of hope for women of color who are in these sort of institutions. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I think um, the nature of my uh, role, certainly at the governor's office, was really at the 50,000 foot level. So I was always really delighted when I was invited to actually be on a campus or be in community like this one, because it allowed me to see, hear, and experience what was happening on the ground. Um, so I don't uh, feel expert enough to be able to share what kinds of, um, to have good, kind of good concrete examples of, of where that is happening. I do think though that fora like these, Right, where we can kind of get together and honestly talk about the nature of our own experiences um, and what it actually takes for to sustain the energy and to sustain the passion that we have for our jobs and for our calling is really, really important. Um, and to be able to do that both in the context of what is it that I need, how can I ask for help? And how do I um, contextualize this or make sure that this is actually also related to helping me to animate my work? Because you know that first question that people ask, people are satisfied professionally with what they do. And so the gratification, the, the, the support that we take from you know, our community actually can help to animate and, and will be gratifying to the output that we have as educators. And so we want to make sure that as we think about kind of drawing on one another for that kind of support, building that kind of community, actually ensuring that community is a cross-cultural community, because to be candid, there are too few of us in the halls of the academy to not depend and rely on all of us. I'm really struck by the comment that was made that Dr. Birds shared earlier um, that said, you know, I'm the only Latinx professor and there's no, you know, like that is an incredibly lonely experience. And what that calls on us to do is to make sure that we are finding that, that we need to lean into our intersectionality in that moment and make sure that we are finding community across these borders and barriers, which is why this is such a beautiful community right now, because we're able to acknowledge that we're able to lift up and see our common experiences. And yet we're able to transcend some of the individual experiences to identify what are some of those structural barriers and then what can I do to help? How can I support? How can we befriend? How can we actually come together? And I think that is what will, will carry us. So the power of community for sure. And uh, Dr. Taylor, you have, uh, if you would like to open your mic or uh, let me know if you would like me to read it. Oh, sure. I can ask a question. Thank you. 
Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Sorry, using my phone is a little different <laughs> than my computer. Um, just wanting to know, what do you do to thrive and survive in higher ed? Like, what are some activities, rituals, um, things that just nurture and, and feed your soul as a woman of color? Yeah. So I have the great benefit of living in Oakland. Um, and so I feel really, really grateful to live in a community that embodies so much beautiful, beautiful diversity. And when I left the governor's office, I took very seriously this um, notion of self-care. And I decided to return to the practice of yoga, which I had not done for a very long time. Um, but now I go at least three times a week. Um, you know, every once in a while I go on a bender and I'm like, I'm going to go every single day. And then I'm exhausted and I'm sore. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, the, the studio that I, where I practice um, is this beautiful, diverse studio, which I go in and I really feel like I can talk, like I can have real conversations with those people. There's one one of my uh, yoga teachers um, starts every class by not, you know, a pose, but having you go to someone else's mat and literally just sit there and talk to them for five minutes and introduce yourself and find a bond and find community. Like it has been so sustaining for me. Um, so that has, and, and I, I will just say, I didn't talk about my life now, I work full time. I'm married. I have three children. <laughs> I'm paying a college tuition right now. My life is very, very full. And it is an act of resistance every time I walk out of this house to go and be in a yoga class because it is me telling my family I am as important as you being fed, as you needing a ride, as you wanting someone to talk to. I am as important and I need to do that for myself so that I can then be there for you when you want to talk. So I can be there for you when you need a ride and not be bitter and resentful. So I can be there for you and, you know, um, prepare you a meal. It is an active resistance for me to go to yoga when I go, but I do it every single time because it actually sustains me. And I have learned to not be apologetic about that, but to understand that that is a system that I actually have some agency in being able to perpetuate. Thank you so much. Uh, Kristen, you have a comment. Hi, uh, I actually have a question. Um, I'm wondering as I'm listening to you talk if there's any focus within the CSU system or at the state level to address uh, hiring pay and retention inequities affecting adjunct POC lecturers because we tend to be excluded from those higher ranks uh, statistically. And as um, Dr. Butler Bird said, you know, do a large, do the bulk of work to some extent. And that impacts our ability to support our students. Yeah, it's a great uh, question. And unfortunately, the way in which um, these systems work is those decisions around um, pay are not informed by the governor's office. They are made within the system. So that is really a question for folks in Long Beach 
and at the chancellor's office because they are the ones who are fully responsible for how those kinds of um, contractual obligations uh, are made and unfold over time. So unfortunately, I don't have much insight into that. And yeah, I don't unfortunately have much insight into that. Can I uh, speak to that for a minute? Because I serve on this. Uh, are any of you also a part of the union, the CFA? Because one of the powerful things about the CFA is that we have a large, strong uh, cadre of lecturers that are part of the California Faculty Association who work really hard to address these critical issues around uh, pay inequities and stuff like that. But we are also working right now. I know there's a, a study that's being done, uh, supposedly the, the, the trust on the trustees level you're supposed to be coming forward with a study on salaries. And so we're pressing to have that data disaggregated by race and gender as well, so that we can get a better and clear idea of what is going on in terms of the specific pay parity issues um, within the CSU. It's been really hard uh, to get that information, the way it's set up. Uh, it often is supposed to be about preserving confidentiality, but what it actually ends up doing is then making it very difficult for us to get the specific data so that we can fight it. But we have a cadre of folks on the ASCSU and in the CFA that are working really hard on these issues because we know that women of color are at the bottom of the pay parity uh, hierarchy and it's not fair because women, uh, women are doing so much important work that is keeping the whole system running. So excellent question, and please uh, stay involved, get involved with the CFA, and please continue to send us information and stay involved with these uh, webinars as well. I'd also like to raise an issue um, that I had to deal with myself over the past year. Um, in the past year, I've had three deaths in my family. The first was my niece, who was only 29 years old and uh, committed suicide. Um, she was a month away from graduating with her um, master's degree, uh, which would have been in student affairs. Um, part of the reason I raised her up is because she was dealing with a lot of the issues that we're talking about, you know, the anti-blackness, um, being one of the only. Um, she had worked at Google for a while. That's where she first started having significant problems. And then she went back to school. And to think that she was in a program that was supposed to have been focused on mental health and well-being, and she ended up dying alone. She was, had a roommate who didn't even notice that she was gone. So that was one death, and then uh, I had a 25-year-old uh, grandnephew who died of COVID, and then my brother passed away from um, the consequences of being a black man in America. He died in December. So I know that I'm not alone. I've talked with other colleagues. I had one colleague who, who lost 10 people during COVID, 10 members of their family. And so I know many of us are dealing with these issues. And the thing that keeps me going is that I live and work 
in a community that's focused on mental health and well-being, the community-based block program. I'm also a therapist, so I also go to therapy on a regular basis myself to keep myself sane. Uh, I do a form of yoga, Tai Chi as well on a regular basis, but for the first time in my life this year, I did have high blood pressure and I've never had a problem like that, but it was definitely stress related. And so making sure that I'm eating well and that I sleep well too, because that's another thing we mess up on big time is not getting enough rest because I think, especially with women, there's a tendency to, well, the whole society is messed up around sleep. Like it's something that's, um, uh, like you're lazy if you're sleeping or whatever too much, but we have to have sleep for our body, minds, and spirit to to heal. And so that and finding something fun and being able to laugh and having funny people around you is really, I think, critically important. And finding people that you can be real about these losses. Because right now I can feel like we're in a dynamic where folks are trying to quickly get over COVID but COVID is still very much with us. And so let's not deny that and be there for each other in some really significant heartfelt ways. Thank you, Nola. I think that that uh, connects the landing of your powerful statement that care for ourselves, uh, it's an act of resistance, right? Sleeping and, uh, so that it is not um, pathologized. Right? or the emphasis on productivity, that we're not uh, doing research or teaching or doing work. If we neglect that, then we are not being, not serving our role. And so that's the fracture of the institutions. So reconnecting with us as people, right? How important that is. It's interesting too, because I remember, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, there was a professor, I was, really stressed out my first semester and I was like oh my god you know the imposter syndrome the whole thing when I was the first semester of my doctoral work and there was one black professor so I went and I sat in his office and I'm like I don't know what to do I'm not going to make it through this semester I have so much work I have to read a book and write a paper blah 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 and he said to me when was the last time you ate a good meal and I looked at him I'm like did you not hear what I just said I have all this work to do I have these things people were expecting things of me and my scholarship and then he said when was the last time you exercised? And when was the last time you slept eight hours? And it was just a visceral reminder at that early point in my career, like how important those essentials of self-care are. We need to eat well. We need to exercise. We need to sleep well. Because that is, you know, putting on your mask before you are taking care of anyone else. And you cannot take care of anyone else if you are not taking care of those basics for yourself. So I love seeing in the chat right now People hooking up across, you know, I I'm at, at San Francisco State. Let's go do some yoga. That is about self-care. That is about sustaining yourself so that you can work on behalf of others, so that you can contribute to your community. I want to thank you all for your condolences. And I do feel poured into, thank you so much. I think, are, are there any final comments or reflections? Because otherwise, I think we're, we're running out of time. So uh, especially 
Are you the kind of person who then gets off of a call or something and then realizes, darn it, I wish I would have said what I <laughs> was thinking or feeling. This is your chance. Please step in. Thank you, and Angelica. Hi, yes. Um, Dr. Bird, thank you for all the work that you've done at SCSU with our Women of Color group. And thank you today, Dr. Jose, for your talk. Um, I was curious uh, because I often try to help educate my colleagues on the economic need, especially of our foster youth as they come off government support and go to college. Um, I was wondering if there were any initiatives that you helped to, to um, spearhead uh, so that we can help our foster youth gain access and pay and stay in college, because um, that's really important. Yeah, the, you know, um, John Burton, uh, something for youth um, has been, I'm forgetting the exact name of the organization, but they've been really um, very engaged with the governor's office about thinking about the unique circumstances that foster youth face, because we tend to bring them up to age 18 and then suddenly treat them as adults. And yet they have none of the social safety net that so many of us have by virtue of family, even if our families you know, are not perfect, we oftentimes have people who are trying to figure out how to care for us. They don't have housing, they don't have access to you know, supports, they don't have all of these things. And then we have this expectation, well, you should just go and kind of you know, take care of yourself. So um, we have been thinking about the kind of the range of services that they need, particularly with the pandemic, what's the glide path so that students don't get um, suddenly pushed into a place where they are um, especially um, without the kinds of supports that they needed. So I know that there had been, I think, some emergency um, aid programs in terms of actually just providing additional cash assistance and extension of particular types of benefits so that they wouldn't kind of face um, a cliff where they would certainly um, have to certain, uh, find that they needed to, to fully care for, for themselves without that kind of um, more gradual path um, to allow them to make the transition. There's also, uh, I think there's an organization in Los Angeles called First Star, if I'm not mistaken, and they have been very active in trying to work with some CSUs as well as some UCs to actually um, have um, foster youth participate in programs on campus that would have them integrate into the campus uh, community much earlier on providing them with housing and a whole set of supports. And so that has been something else that I know the governor's office was very much involved with while I was while I was there. And Angelica, Lucy and Emily um, have some uh, responses for you if you want to connect with them as well. Uh, Emily, you yes, raise good, your hand. Um, good evening, good evening everyone. Um, I am so inspired by this group and I am just so surprised that um, more of my colleagues are not here from the Central Valley. Um, I actually live in Stockton, but I work at San Jose State University. And this is just, um, I just it's just refreshing. It's refreshing. There's a, there's like a, it's like an oasis, this group, you know, and you get refreshed. Um, and just making Lucy and Angelica's con, uh, contact is really important. I did want to say to Angelica that there's a, um, there are services on campus and the CSU is trying to systemize it a bit. And I know the governor's budget is going to include providing support funds for these programs for former foster youth as they go to college. Um, but it's just fascinating to watch over time 
how we think that we have gotten to a certain place by helping them get to college. And it's, you know, I don't know one parent who, once they get their, their child in college, then turns around and says, okay, we're done. The, the social capital issues are so profound, and there are so many children of color who are in these systems, and, and I don't get any sleep because I'm working on this stuff all the time. And so it's very interesting to me to see how, um, how Dr. Jose has told us about taking care of ourselves. And I know I, put, I have to put my, my oxygen mask on first before I can help anybody. But my goodness, there's not enough time to do all the stuff that seems to need to be done. And I just like listening to someone tell me, take care of yourself, eat a good meal, go to sleep, and do all this other stuff and still and still know that you can be available to help and change your campus. There's a lot, they're asking us, the world is asking a lot of us. And uh, there's a lot of weight on our shoulders. There is a lot of weight so, and it's not just that you'll have the time, it's that that will renew you and you'll actually be able to give more if you are taking care of yourself in that way. So. It's not just I need to put on my mask first and then take care of myself so I can, it's that it will, it will renew your spirit. You will feel more joyful, more hopeful, more alive, more willing, more able to support those people who in your life when you do that self-care. And that's why it's, it's a radical act of resistance because it feels like <laughs> I, I can't take time. And actually you are taking time so that you can actually serve others. Thank you. Well, we want to thank you all so much for joining us. We know how horrifically busy you are and how much you give to so many. Dr. Josie, we really want to thank you so much for your words of wisdom and inspiration for all of us tonight. Uh, we do have a survey at the very end uh, that we ask you to please complete. And if you're also willing to complete the other longer survey. We greatly appreciate it. We have your contact information. We will definitely be doing more webinars uh, in the coming year, and we'll be reaching out to you with other things that come up that we hope will also help you to make it through these challenging times. Thank you so much. Keep hope alive, and we'll be sending you good loving prayers. Mm -hmm.